Talking coaching, rowing, and all things sports science. It's the Bro Show with Bill Tate and Rod Siegel. G'day, Rodney. How are we going? Good, thanks, BT. How are you? Not too bad. Not too bad. Off the water from another session uh, on the Yarra this morning, but um, happy to be here. We've got uh, Juventus outside our window here practicing for the next month, which is going to be interesting for us. Yep. And a few NBA players rolling through the gym, uh, which, which I like. Yeah, which should make good. your day. Fantastic. So what are we talking about today, Rodney? Uh, what are we talking about? Um, sports science and coaching. Right. How do they interact? How do they work together? Where's the conflict? Um, you know, what do coaches want out of sports scientists? How, how are they going to impact and, you know, positively on their programs? And how do sports scientists want to contribute? And so is it a, a metaphorical thing that we're seeing at opposite sides of the table here where we're doing the recording or are we coming from, from the same direction, do you think? Well, probably not. It's probably quite a good <laughs> <laughs> analogy there, metaphor. So it, it's a bit of an age-old thing when we're talking about training centres and, and management at this level is the integration of sports science. And when I rode, in, on reflection, we had some really good scientists, but the integration of science, science into sport in the 90s was, it was like a bolt-on. And I have a feeling that, and even talking to people now, that it was almost like there was a little bit of an unofficial sort of war going on between... Um, some of the service provision and the coaches as to who was really responsible for the athletes. And I guess over time, particularly through the initiatives of professional sports, the benefits of sports science have become more and more evident. And I think in some ways, a lot of training centres are now and, and, and uh, sports teams are trying to figure out how to truly integrate sports science into the everyday practice and, and figure out how to optimise the use of their knowledge within what the coaches and the athletes are trying to um, achieve. So it, it's a pretty important topic and there's probably quite a bit to talk about. So Yeah, certainly. I mean, you can still sense some of that underlying battle today, um, you know, across a lot of different sports and probably different programs and, you know, professionally in Olympic sports. Yeah, certainly that battle between service providers, support staff, and coaching is mm. is still there. Um, but yeah, certainly the the integration of the two, almost in a way of you know not one's working for the other or against the other, but we're all working for the athletes. Mm. And how do we bring that together to get the best outcome for the athletes and for the programs? Yeah, yeah and I reckon um, I reckon that in Back in the day when institutes in Australia were being instigated, there was potentially the thought at times that it was going to go down the path where a sports scientist would manage the athlete and the coach would be more of a technical-only coach and, and would deliver upon the technical requirements of the sport and the, the physiologist would do all the physiological stuff. And I, I suppose now, the way it sits at the moment, whether it's right or wrong... The coaches or the head coach is ultimately responsible for the, the delivery of the performance of the athlete. Um, obviously, the athlete makes the performance happen. Um, and the performance services uh, link in. Where, where it works really well, they're um, integrally linked into the day-to-day um, delivery. And I suppose what we want to talk about today is what is sports science? Like, what does it look like today? What is coaching 
um, and it's going to be different across all sports. Obviously, our sort of main thing here is, I suppose, rowing, but it's across a number of sports. Um, what does athlete management look like versus coaching a little bit? And then maybe talk a little bit about some of the practicalities of that. So sports yeah, science, what's sports science, Rodney? You're the expert. Well, sports science, still to this day, I've been doing it for a little while, and I still, anytime I meet somebody new and they ask, what do you do? And you say sports science, I still don't know how to quite explain it. It's a number of different things. My, I guess my role more specifically is on the physiology side of things. It's probably my background a bit more. Um, but there are certainly other areas, biomechanics, um, you know, even strength and conditioning, I think you could consider as, as a type of sports science. Um, so education-wise, what did you do? Just quickly run us through that. Um, well, I did um, an undergrad in human movement, back when it was called human movement, uh, and I did an honours degree following that in they changed it to exercise and sports science and then a PhD in sports science following that. And what was your PhD in again? It was in drinking slushies, <laughs> as we get a lot of grief about. So, <laughs> yes. Very important <laughs> part of the athletic spectrum for yes. athletes in this day and age. Yeah. So, being a physiologist and working, you know, full-time at the Institute of Sport here and seconded to the rowing team, obviously, but you also work currently with triathlon at the VIS as well. How much of your day or your weekly schedule is devoted just purely to physiology and, and what other things would you consider that you do in a, in a week? Uh, well, I'd say probably most of it, I guess, would come down to physiology, but then there's other things, GPS monitoring. Which is like performance monitoring. More performance monitoring, exactly. Um, so, yeah, uh, like in any sport, you might have power meters or you know, speed for running and so on. So we use the, the, uh, the GPS to measure boat speed and stroke rate and, and so on and so forth. So, But, you know, I mean, a good part of it probably comes down to, I guess the way I think of my role is, how can I help optimise the daily training stimulus so that the athletes are as physically or physiologically best prepared as they can to row fast over 2,000 metres. And that's, I guess, how I start the day. You know, yeah. what do I need to do today that contributes to that? Um, so it might be monitoring training loads or looking at the training stimulus, timing different heart rate zones, what training session are they going to do, how are we going to manipulate work-to-rest ratios and intensities and how does that slot into the week, other different training interventions. I mean, it just goes on and on. And, and while we're talking about that specifically for you, how do you do that? Like, what are your key tools that you use for the performance monitoring and the um, physiological accounting of the athlete's training load? Well, for performance monitoring, we've set up a number of different spreadsheets, essentially using Excel, um, where we can track training performances over time. So we've got different boat speeds and speeds at different ratings and, and different sessions and all that sort of thing. And we can go back over time and compare and see how they're progressing from just a pure performance point of view. Yep. And we've got data back you know, for, for a number of years with that, which is great. Um, we've obviously got power analysis, um, which you do most of, of that sort of thing with the, um, yeah, with the peak we'll talk system. Yeah, about that as well. So, yep. And the main thing in terms of training load monitoring and, and I guess the stimulus monitoring would be we use the training peak software to look at training loads. Um, and, and things like timing, heart rate zones, intensities, and, and so on and so forth. And then probably the last main one from the physiology side would be uh, heart rate variability monitoring, um, which we've been doing a fair bit more of recently. Yeah, and I think we'll probably have a chat about that in another 
episode at some stage more specifically. So one of the areas probably of sports science that, that, um, that you don't do in our group is the biomechanics, and that sort of sits with me specifically because that's where I've had experience. Um, and I should say, you know, I have an education background in doing human movement degree back in the day as well, so I have an interest in that area anyway. And I do the... It's not really true biomechanics, the way we use Peach. We do a little bit of that occasionally, um, but we use the, um, the Peach software, and we primarily use it to use it as a performance monitoring tool to watch power outputs in specific types of training sessions to look at matchups of arc lengths and that sort of thing and where it strays into a little bit of uh, biomechanics is, is what we do less of, I suppose, with the software. But it'd be fair to say that whilst rowing is a very physiologically hungry kind of sport, we use a lot of that information the requirement for a sports scientist in rowing is to have some general skills, isn't it, in, in those areas like biomechanics and performance monitoring and even nutrition at different times and that sort of thing? No, I mean, it's all, the performance comes entirely down to physiology. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay. So, no, well, yeah, I mean, certainly certainly those things are, are really important um, and it's, it, is, it was quite humbling the first time I saw the power file of a rowing race and a crew that had a higher power actually finished slower. So mm. that was... Oh, how does that happen? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's not... You know, it, it doesn't, in theory, make sense until you really understand it. So, you know, it, it quite quickly shows you that there, there's some other very important factors technically going on, um, which are, you know, obvious. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, certainly all those things play a part. I think nutrition plays can play a really big role, um, and I think even more on a very individual level, some athletes' nutrition probably doesn't play necessarily a big role and, and others it can play a very big role. So, mm. um, and, and certainly what you eat can impact your, you know, the physiological side yeah. of things. So I think there's a whole potential podcast on that at some stage as true, well. True, yeah. So, you know, we've spoken through there a fair bit through the different aspects of sports science. I suppose in, in what we use, and that's by no means definitive, in um, sports that are highly technical and not so much physiological, there'd be a lot more um, performance analysis things and biomechanics would be critically important and the physiology would be, you'd just be using some very general principles. Ours is obviously heavily physiologically biased. Um, there's probably not a lot else that, that we're doing... Um, on a regular basis at the moment, I wouldn't think outside of that. Yeah, I mean, they probably cover the fundamental day-to-day mm. -day things that make up the, you know, the most important things that are going to impact on performance. Um, yeah. You know, there's certainly, you know, ergogenic aids and specific, you know, um, training interventions, heat training, altitude, so on and so forth. But I think certainly that makes up, you know, the fundamental side of things. So... As a coach, I think one of the things that, um, that we look for in, in coaching uh, from sports science is to help us figure out some answers, not to necessarily give us the answers, but I think a lot of the times where I feel like I work best with a sports scientist in the coaching space, I suppose, is when the sports science helps, scientist helps give you some context to a problem you've got that helps you come up with a solution. Sometimes if you just get told something, you know, you need to do this now, if you don't really understand it, it's a little bit like the giving me a fish versus teaching me how to fish principle. And, and I think 
you know, where I've enjoyed it the most, and I, I think some of the stuff that we've been doing over the last few years has really progressed that with me, is where um, the scientist is not telling the coach how to suck eggs so much, but actually trying to understand the problems that the coach is having or the areas where the coach needs a little bit of help and help that problem rather than impose necessarily, uh, you know, other things upon upon the coach that might not necessarily help the immediate problems that, that are being faced. What do you think about that idea? I think that perfectly sums up either how a sports scientist can be effective or, or ineffective. Yeah. So exactly as you said, if you, as a sports scientist, if you come in and say, you need to do this, it's generally not going to go down very well. And I think there's a, you know, a couple of reasons for that. Firstly, the sports scientist may not know the whole context around everything that's going on with mm. that athlete or that crew or whatever it might be at that given point in time. So to come and say, we need to do this, you might straight away get the answer, well, that won't work because of A, B, C, D, E, F, and G. And you very yeah. quickly go, oh, yeah, of course. And certainly I think with just about everything in life, if somebody else comes to that conclusion for themselves, it's going to work a mm. lot better than if you just tell them. has a lot more weight in their mind, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. And so for me, like often, and, and now doing this for a while, I know that, and I mean, often I'll even say to you, this is where I'm up to with, say, the training plan at the moment, but I'm not 100% happy with it because mm. I don't necessarily have all of the context. Yeah. So I think to be able to come to you, for example, and say, look, this is what I'm thinking about these things and this is why, and then you can join all the dots together, it, it means, A, it's going to work a lot better for you, but B, it ends up working better for me as well because it, everything gets put into context. So yeah. I guess for sports scientists out there, it's really is, it's more about planting a seed and almost getting the ball rolling and the conversation starting on something rather than just coming in and saying, oh, this is the solution. Yeah. Because most often... I'm never 100% satisfied with my own version of the solution until I chat to you about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I reckon one of the hard things about being a sports scientist working into a lot of sport at the moment, because we're still figuring out how the dynamics work within the management of uh, athletes, you, there's a fine balance between proving your worth, like coming in and making a difference, making a performance impact versus imposing a certain idea it can be a really fine mm. line you may see something you go i know that will help but that might not help at this point in time yeah. and i think there's a real art to picking that um that timing you know and i think when it works really well is when and it's sports scientists but for that matter it can be the physical prep or strength and conditioning guys it could be the physios or the doctors as well because they will have the same insights that are very specific in an area and if that intervention gets thrown in appropriately at the right time to the athlete and coach it can get taken up really well and at the wrong time it can almost do harm in one sense mm-hmm. like you can it can push you further away from that idea because you're just not ready mm-hmm. to hear it and then yeah and then that that idea can be almost completely off the table going forward yeah so it, it, it yeah it definitely is a final line yeah yeah so it's it's a tough balance and i mean we're lucky we i feel like I, i've always felt like we've had great sports science and, and physical prep and medical support locally. But we've also had the trainee program as well, where you have sports scientists coming into the, into the squad every year, two of them coming every year. Uh, and they're usually pretty smart. They're usually the best um, uh, you know, kids, in inverted commas, of their university 
groups with good ideas and, and you can see that they are generally motivated, but that first lesson, that first block of time, trying to get them to understand that they need to take time to consider everything that's going on and not throw everything up that they see is really important. And that, and that may actually sort of move along to the maybe another point, which is the difference between you know, fast thinkers and slow thinkers. You know, in the athletic space, you know, I suppose coaches and athletes, when they're training or performing, it's about fast thinking. You've got to make decisions quickly. And I think what can be really helpful is when the support staff are, are able to take that little bit more time to use their knowledge to be considered about their um, recommendations and, and maybe uh, use the fact that they have a little bit more breathing space to come up with those decisions over time um, to, to, to perhaps make a more thoroughly rationalised recommendation, if that makes sense. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think you've said that pretty well. Um, and I guess... Sports science, in a sense, is a lot about using objectivity. Yeah. So, um, you know, at the moment, as an example, I'm helping a few of the crews that are um, in Europe at the moment preparing for the games. I'm, a lot of the stuff that I'm seeing remotely is out of context. I'm not yeah. seeing the athletes. Um, I'm not watching them perform. I'm not seeing them get off the water and what they look like and get on in the morning and so on. So I'm, a lot of the time I'm looking at numbers on a page. So... You kind of you do need to consider all of those different measures that you're taking, and how does that link in with that? And you know you've got some boat speed information here, and you've got some heart rate variability data there, and you've got some training load there, and how does that all link in? And you kind of need to really consider and, and almost weight it, and and give an objective sort of feedback to the coach. And yeah. I think that can be really good in a sense, in that you're giving purely objective feedback, yeah, yeah, yeah. but can also be quite bad because sometimes it can be completely out of context. Mm. So um, I think in the perfect world, you've got the blend of both where, you know, in the normal daily training environment, you're there with the athletes and you can then go and use the ob objective measures as well. But certainly you do have a lot more time generally to, as you say, think slowly about things and come yeah. up with a, a rational conclusion to something. Um, but then as another example you know, with some crews that are training obviously really hard in the lead up to the games at the moment. Um, you know, some heart rate variability data might come in and you get an email from a coach saying, you know, so-and-so is, you know, in the bin at the moment, a bit rubbish, what does this say? And you, you need to very quickly have a look at something and say, oh, well, you know, I think we need to pull back on X, Y, and Z. You know, these numbers are showing whatever it might be. And, and you, you know, oftentimes you do need to think fast as well. So yeah. it, it is a blend. I think also what you touched on there is is probably a really good um, example of why it's important. The collaboration side is important because there's no such thing as exact science really for us in sport. Like, a, yeah, and you know, I think in medical world, there's not so much of it is around. I have a perspective. You have a, have a perspective. <clears throat> when we combine those together, we can make a better decision. Hmm. You know, I'm seeing the athlete. They look like this. They're reporting that. The data's showing this. Oh the probability is based on all of those things, but if we were just to jump at one, we might make the wrong decision, um, which I suppose Absolutely. is a key part of it, isn't it? Yeah, and I think, um, you know, one of the coaches said to me while we were overseas was, I want you to look at this, and I want, me to, and I want you to give me your perspective on it. I don't want to hear you say what you think I want to hear. Yeah. I need a different perspective for my own on this. And, um, you know, we had an incident well, not an incident, but a situation just last week where, you know, an athlete was coming in, they were been training hard, 
you took one look at them and thought, don't really like the look of them yeah. today, had a quick chat with them, and then you asked me, can you have a quick look at their HIV data? Had, had a quick look, and between, between us, we decided it might be an idea just to pull back on the workload session from today mm. and allow a bit more recovery for the, for the more key session later on in the week. So um, that's happened? how it works. What happened there? Well, that athlete absolutely knocked the, uh, <laughs> knocked the session out of the ballpark on the Saturday morning. So yeah. after, you, after a little bit of sooking. And uh, came back on Monday and said, you know, it was the right thing to do. <laughs> it was the right thing to do. <laughs> Not entirely, but, but after that. So, I, I mean, I think that's a probably, you know, that's a perfect example, I think, of, of how, you know, you know, collaborating in that way can, you can hopefully come to the right outcome because one thing may not necessarily give you the right answer. And I reckon um, the other part is, is uh, that you touched on there was the, the benefits and the limitations of the physical space. So technology these days with training peaks and, um, you know, a Garmin Connect and Moves Count Strava and these things, it can give you, a, and, and even some of the video analysis stuff that can go online, you can do a lot of uh, work with crews and athletes that are remote. And there's a lot of people in other sports who are, very successful that are purely coached by people that don't even live in the same country as them mm-hmm. these days using this technology. But there is also some advantage in the in the physical um, location as well. And I think that's probably one other point that I think is good. A lot of the times where we come up with ideas between the two of us is, uh, you know, when we're sitting in, in our little office, sitting, you know, at opposite sides of the open space with Johnny, uh, our strength and conditioning guy, and Kath there just, mm-hmm. you know, talking smack and, and throwing ideas and coming up with things. So there is that element of just being able to bounce at times and not feel the pressure of, we've got to make a decision on this, but we're talking through ideas. Yeah, well, I think that's been, that situation it has almost been the most, for me, the most important thing in yeah. terms of allowing me to have a positive impact on the program. I mean, thinking back to starting in the program, just driving up and down Carrow, just yeah, yeah. talking smack in the car for two hours, and just the amount of stuff that we would get through and bouncing ideas. Mm. And it's, you know, but not only just that, but first and foremost, it's just building that relationship and, you know, yeah. where, where are you? What questions do you have? You know, what keeps you up at night? You know, where, you know, what point of view am I coming from? And sort of, yeah, just building that, figuring out where each other's coming from. And, um, you know, from my point of view, earning that trust and, um, you know. It gets said a lot in our sport, but that time... Uh, in the tinny or in the car with the coach and the provider, whether it's yourself or Johnny, uh, our strength and conditioning guy, or Harry who comes down a fair bit, or um, one of the medical staff, whoever it is, just developing developing a relationship. Uh, Cobber, who used to uh, be the head coach here, Chris O'Brien, would always say to me, um, you know, you practice conversations when you don't have to so that when you need to have a conversation, it's easy. And I think that's a really good example. You mm-hmm. know, it then becomes really easy at a pressured time to go, Oi, mate, I need some help with that and I need it now. And it's, you're quite comfortable with one mm-hmm. another and you understand how to deal with one another. But then just that, I think it, it would be easy to think that's unproductive time. The physio or the physiologist is sitting in the car with a coach watching a training session, but it, there's so much ground gets covered in that time, isn't there? That mm. There's almost never a better time to do it than when you're actually watching what's going on. Yeah, I mean, I could not agree more with that. I mean, I've always said, I've said to you before, in my previous role in New Zealand working with the kayak team, I couldn't physically watch them train. 
Yeah, yeah. So they trained on a lake that didn't allow motorboats, and the only way you could watch them was if you could paddle fast enough to keep up with them yourself. And if, <laughs> if that were true, you should then, be in the team. <laughs> well, either I should be, I should be in the team, or we have a very slow team, which we, which we don't, or we didn't. So, um, and I think I, I've seen more rowing. I probably saw more rowing in six months than I, than kayaking yeah. in three years that I was there, and I think, you know. Definitely from, you know, just being there with you and chatting through things and all the stuff that we would get through, but also just in seeing it and yeah. in seeing and just watching the athletes go through a training session, just watching them go through a long, slow, boring T2 session or a really, really, really hard, you know, threshold or high intensity session and seeing what they're like when they turn up in the morning, seeing what they're like when they hop off the water, uh, you know, in between, watching what they eat in between morning mm. sessions. Um, it's you know in a way you kind of feel like I'm just sort of, I've been here four hours and I haven't done anything quote unquote but it really <laughs> sets you up quite a lot. Mm. It's an investment, isn't it? Oh yeah, massively, and you wouldn't have it have it any other way. And I think then the athletes really trust you mm. as well. Yeah. The yeah. athletes see you there with them at six o'clock in the morning by the you know by the lake, and they see you there, and yeah. and you know they see that you're enthusiastic and they they see that you care about them and, and that you want to help them. And, you know, so then when you ask them to do, you say, I think you can do seven watts more than that tonight on the, these threshold pieces. They go, well, you know, he's got my back. You know, he's on my team. He's actually trying mm-hmm. to get the best for me. He's not just toying with me. And, yeah, I think that's true. Yeah. I mean, I certainly feel, you know, because I get to spend so much more time around these guys than I have with other athletes in the past, you just feel that they know that you... You've got that back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that manifested itself this year a little bit when, you know, I couldn't be at that selection regatta um, and and you kind of were able to step into the coaching space. And I guess that's a really good sign of uh, the development of the culture of that side of how the integration works is, you know, you can cover for one another in that sort of space as well. Mm. Yeah, coaching's easy though, so that was... <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I think you told me afterwards that was the hardest week of your life. But anyway, we'll move along. Uh, somebody else wants to send that text message. <laughs> so, you know, without sort of uh, using, I guess, specific examples, what, what are the things that happen when it doesn't work, do you think? Like what? Because there, um, there is times where it doesn't work. And I was listening to another podcast um, with a couple of guys who talk about this sort of stuff a little bit recently where they were talking a little bit about um, some coaching stuff identifying that sports science you know doesn't work for them or it didn't work and where the conflicts arise but you know what, what do you see as being key things that don't that are present when it doesn't work in a team space I think when it doesn't work it's usually the, the sports science and the coaches are coming from completely different angles and they're just absolutely butting heads and oftentimes. You know, and, I, and I've seen it, and I've sort mm. of been, been a part of it, and you, and you kind of see, like, looking at it from the outside, the sports scientist is like, this coach doesn't know what he's talking about, doesn't know what he's doing, I'm, I'm the expert here, I know what it's about. And on the other side, the coach is sitting there going, this guy just doesn't get it. Yeah. Like, yeah, I'm sure he's smart and all that, but they just do not get it. And so I think that's where it, it's so important in, in getting that immersion happening where you're integrated in the sport and then so you do get it yeah. and you do see the whole big picture because the sports scientist really if, if you're talking just the role of the job it's 
it's much it's much more limited than than the coach. The coach really is bringing everything together. Yeah. And you you may not know it as you know as integrated as I feel. I'm sure that there's still at times things that I'm not aware of. So yeah, yeah. you know to come in and just go, oh, Scott, there's no one's talking about. We have to do it like this. Is very sort of short sighted. Um, and so I think oftentimes that's where you see things break down and, and oftentimes it is it's the sports scientists sort of coming in going right we have to do it like this there's no two ways it's black and white it's science this is what works yeah. this is what we have to do and um, you know it, it just doesn't work like that and, and I think the flip side is also true I reckon on the coaching side you can see sometimes and, and I think we've all been guilty of it where you, f- you feel wedded to a way of doing things or a thing and you you don't take well in the in the moment to that being challenged. You know, I've always done that and that's worked for me and you're now challenging it. Now, some of that could be framing, you know, a, a, a provider, whether it's sports science or, or um, physical prep or sports med, they might come in and say, look, you know, just want to walk through why that thing actually works for you and is it appropriate at this time or is it just a legacy thing that you've always done? Um, I reckon that's where the conflict can arise. And, and I, I think that at different times there can be that element of seeing, you know, the coach might be sitting on the arts end of the spectrum, whereas obviously the sports science is in the science end of the spectrum and everyone can be protective of their own territory a little bit. You know, I don't mm. want to give up too much in the art space, my judgment on looking and subjective analysis of things, using the experience of watching that sport for 20 years or whatever handing that over, but I, I guess that's all about protection of space versus collaboration. And probably mm. the, key, the key thing is when there is a sense of collaboration between all of the people that work with the athlete, I guess what makes that a lot easier is when it's understood who is ultimately accountable, like the lines of accountability. And in, mm. in our um, situation, that sits with the coach. The coach is accountable for the athlete's performance and... Um, and therefore is the final sort of conduit to, to the athlete as to what's going to happen. And mm. once there's some trust built in that, it's quite easy for you know, the, the, pra- uh, the providers within the team to operate really freely with the athlete once the trust has been developed. Mm. But that's probably pretty key. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's really key. And I think that's something that support staff often don't have in their mind in that yeah. you know, I've heard somebody say before, well, they've never fired the sports scientist when the athlete didn't go well. And that's, you know, mostly true. Um, yeah. And I think at the, at the end of the day, the coach does need to make that final decision. And therefore, you know, like you said before, if they're used to doing something in a certain way and they've done it like that all the time and they've had generally had success, it, it is the safer option to go with that rather than somebody coming in and saying, hey, we need to do something completely different here. Um, yeah. and it, it, but, you know, it's not your neck on the line, uh, ultimately, if it doesn't go well. Um, so you do need to understand, like, you know, one thing that I, that I did that was really important when I first started in this role was really try to put myself in your shoes as much as I yeah. could to try and say, well, all right, what, if I was Bill, what would I do? Rather than just like, well, if I was me, I would do this. But okay, what would I do in this situation coming from Bill's perspective, you know, with his experiences and his, you know, the outcomes of those things that would happen? And I think if you think of, think of that every now and then, yeah. it'll help you understand, you know, the other side of things a little bit better. Yeah, and I reckon I reckon that it also is is that notion of 
um, being able to have conversations versus give directives almost, you mm -hmm. know. Can we chat about that? Like, why are you doing 2K step rates? Well, we've always done them. They seem to work pretty well. Okay, well, what would you think about doing them all just at one speed and then taking speed? Oh, we could do it. Why would you do that? Well, it means you target a certain training zone. Oh, okay, we'll try that and limit the rest of it. Oh, now we're actually getting a little bit more out of that session and it seems to have evolved versus it historically been a session that we were wedded to and we would always do. And we had good data on it. There was no doubt it was a good monitoring session, but potentially a, there's a better way of getting out of it. We, we get to that, it takes a bit of a conversation. It's not going to be, a, oh, just change this to that. And yeah, and I, think, and I think what you touched on, the most important thing is if you've, like from, that, from my point of view, I might have looked at that and you could just come and go, hey, this would be better than that. Mm. But really, the first thing you need to do is ask the question as to why, it's, why it is the way it is. So with everything, really, from my point of view, I, I find I, I need to ask the questions because there might be a, a perfect reason as to why it's done that way. And, and oftentimes I'll, I'll, I will ask you a question, you know, why is it done like this? Because in my mind, I would think maybe I'd do it a different way. And then after you explain it, I go, huh. That probably is the best way to do it then. It's better than what I did think initially now that I understand about it. So I think, yeah, the important thing is about, from the sports scientist, your job is to really to ask questions. I mean, that yeah. really, I mean, that's technically what science is, trying to ask questions and, and yeah. answer them. So, um, you know, rather than coming in with all the answers, you need to come in with all the questions and, and then try and figure out the answers yeah, to yeah. those questions. Yeah, I think that's a really good way of looking at it. And... I suppose, you know, in considering then where it sits in terms of the way it works at the moment and, and, and what works and what doesn't work, like, can we speculate on how it ultimately may work into the future? I mean, we, we see examples in professional teams where they have a lot of resources and they um, can call upon um, a whole lot of different things. And you know, a coach moves along, or they generally take their team with them, including their key sports scientists and that, those sort of things. Um, you know, how, how would you see in 10 years' time the integration between sports science and coaching looking? Yeah, well, I think that, that's the key thing, the, the key word that you've used and we've touched on is integration. And, yeah. and I think that's a great example of when it works. It, it works really well in that, in a professional team, if a coach moves on, they want to take their whole um, team with them because obviously they've built a really good team. It's not, it's not the equipment that they have or mm. um, you know the money or the funding, you know whatever it might be. It's like, oh, we've built a really good unit here, and and I, I need to take this with me, or you know I don't want to have to build one all again. So um, it really is. It's almost like, from my point of view, I remember reading something about Team Sky Cycling. Yeah. And they kind of said that they're basically the athletes in the middle and everyone works for the athletes. Like the athlete's the boss, yeah. right? So, you know, if everyone's on this, that page of, right, how do we get the best outcome for the athlete together? Um, that's, and it sounds so simple. And I think we actually do it really, really well here. Um, but certainly, you know, I've been in situations where it doesn't work as well as this. But that, that is what it's all about. Yeah. I don't think it's any more complicated than that. It really is working together as a team with a, with a goal. And, you know, one of my favourite quotes is, isn't it amazing what you can accomplish if nobody cares about who gets credit for it? 
Yeah. So and <laughs> and you know and I've again I've said said to lots of people, um, you know, as a support staff member, if you're in it for the credit, you may as well just stop now because you're never going to get the credit. Yeah. <laughs> no matter what you do, you can. Wow. You can have the, the most amazing thing, and at the end of the day. You know, watch the Olympics. <laughs> I don't think anybody's going to be, oh, it was all because of the sports scientist. So, yeah, but there's also, I think you can see when it works, there's the athletes very quickly identify that the people that make a difference for them, don't they? they yes, know. yeah, they know. And that's, um, that's enough. <laughs> that will, not just that's enough, that's the best part. Absolutely, um, yeah. And, you know, I know for me, I was lucky enough to work with some athletes that won medals, gold medals at, at the London Games, and the best part, the best part of all of it was when they crossed the line first. Yeah. Nothing topped that. So not when, you know, somebody at, at work the next day says, oh, you know, well done, so-and-so won. And, you know, not when, you know, the coach thanked you, not when the athlete thanked you. Yeah. Um, the best part was seeing them cross the line first. So if you're in it for the kudos, like nothing will top yeah. the, the raw, real part of it. <clears throat> yeah. Oh, that's a wonderful thing about sport, isn't it? In the end, yeah. I think my reflection on it is: you think, oh, over time, you know, more resources come in, more, more, more. I think, I hope in you know, ten years' time, that if I was coaching still then, that I would still have a small team of key support staff that I dealt with. So at the moment, I have key doctor, key physio, key physiologist, key strength and conditioning guys, probably two, who I work with, you know most days in the delivery of um, the the squad here, I wouldn't want to see it sprawled so that there was more, more, more people. I think the, the more important thing is that you have just enough people that you can have really good relationships with and not so many people that you can't manage it. And I think by virtue of that, I think that I kind of feel like we will never be successful in a situation where we have separate biomechanists, performance analysis, uh, physiology, all these little areas, it's almost like you just need one person who's going to look after the, the delivery of that and maybe have some providers that assist with it, but that, that you have just enough people that you can have a really good relationship with them. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, that does make sense. That makes perfect sense. And I, and I guess you've experienced that with, with the success you've had in your coaching, and, and that's the way it's gone. And certainly in my experience, that's how I've seen the best programs operate as well so and i remember after the london games um in new zealand they did an analysis on the most successful um pockets of athletes and and teams and so on and they found the same thing that the groups that had the best um performances uh ultimately had just these small little pockets of really close tight-knit teams that work together um and you know that's what led to success it wasn't just yeah, yeah, just everything, um, you know, resources coming out left, right and centre and, and, you know, they suggested going forward that's probably it's probably going to be the same. Yeah. Very good. So to finish off with, we were going to try and have a look quickly at the, um, a bit of analysis of a, a typical sort of session each, each time we do one of these, Rodney. So... Um, I thought today, given that we're doing this in the middle of winter's training here, um, that perhaps having a look at a fairly heavy aerobic kind of session might be a, a, a bit of a good one to look at. So I thought maybe starting with the uh, off-water stuff even, and the, the, the long aerobic session on the ergo, which might be 
for us, one that we would do would be the three by 30 minute um, at T2, what we call T2. So maybe if you want to explain some of the science behind that session, and I'll explain a little bit of the rowing side of that. Right, so let's start. So I guess that sort of session, from the physiological point of view, I look at that almost as just a time session. It's, it's really all about getting the time done. Um, and so it's ideally that session is done. We call it a T2 session. So, so what is T2? So T2 is essentially, um, it's, it's the training zone just below the aerobic threshold. Which so is? The aerobic threshold is when um, blood lactate or ventilation or other different things starts, just starts to accumulate at a, at a sort of, at a small at a small degree, I guess. So um, ideally you want to be doing it in that, in that training zone just before the aerobic threshold. So, so typically know. what would that look like if I was just, if I didn't have any testing but I was jumping on and I wanted to think I was in T2, in terms of percentage of max heart rate and maybe um, perceived exertion, what, what would that feel like, yeah. do you reckon? So usually the aerobic threshold occurs at a roughly at about 80% of your max heart rate. So yep. you know, it can, can vary a little bit, but that's a pretty good rule. So as long as you're below that 80%. Um, and from an RPE point of view, it should sort of feel, initially it should probably feel light, but by the end of it, it should feel quite steady to, to moderate yep. intensity. So it, it certainly shouldn't feel hard um, or, or even moderately hard. The, the best descriptor I like to use to give to athletes is it should feel steady, like you just at a steady pace that you can yep. hold for quite a while um, and it's not hard. And in terms of, would I be right in saying it would equate to roughly 60% of your power for your ergo, 2K ergo? Yeah, score? thereabouts, yeah. 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 So for, for people wanting to do that, if you convert your score into the average watts, which you can do online or with one of the little watt converter apps and just multiply that by 0.6, it's not a bad estimation for your um, aerobic threshold, really. Yeah, yeah it's, quite, it's quite good, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the, the other thing with that is... Um, it then all, all it depends on where you are in the training week. And just one of the athletes last week said, you know, they hopped on, they, they were doing a really good job and they were sitting, you know, in their T2 band, the watts were really, really good. And they're like, oh, great. Monday watts. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> well, yep, yeah, it was Monday watts, but Friday watts can be often be quite different to Monday watts depending on, on how heavy your week is. So that's probably something to depends keep in Depends if on. you've had a big bike ride on Sunday, I suppose, as well. Yes, and a big weekend on uh, <laughs> Sunday. Yes. <laughs> Um, so three by 30, um, I suppose from a coaching point of view, the 30 minutes, I think we, we think is good because number one, the 30 minutes is, is a good period of time for concentration in terms of the longer, the better in terms of grooving concentration. I firmly believe one of the things I really believe in, in rowing is that concentration is the first trait of a successful athlete and from concentration comes consistency and then that's leads to confidence of performance so training concentration over you know 30 minutes or even longer is ideal but we tend to stick to 30 minutes i know our team doctors recommend that they get off and we only usually get off for two minutes and have a quick stretch and and then get back on for the next 30 but just enough to unload and, and move the back a little bit and I think there's been some studies around that being a little bit more optimal for looking after people's lower backs. Um, so the three by 30, that's probably the, the reason for the time frame from a rowing coaching point of view, but from a physiological point of view, how does that work for you? 
Yeah, I mean, certainly 30 minutes on the ergo as well. The, the ergo is, and for people who aren't as familiar with rowing, 30 minutes on the ergo is a lot harder than 30 minutes, say, on a, on a watt bike or, yeah. or, or treadmill or something like that. So um, it, even sort of from the physiological point of view. So I think, you know, three 30-minute blocks with just a short break in between, I mean, I really don't think it would make any difference at all if you did that 90 minutes can you know, continuously from the physiological point of view. So certainly taking the doctor's advice on, you know, the potential risks of it, the, the piece is going longer than 30 minutes is clever and I don't think you lose anything from the, from the physiological point. And if I ask you to make a guess on what would be a training stress score in um, training peaks analysis for that sort of a session, 90 minutes in T2? Oh, good one. Uh, it, it's probably... Around about probably 70, 75, yeah. something like that. Some of it does depend on how much your heart rate drifts. Um, if you've got a if you've got a fan on, yeah. if you've got a fan on, uh, you know, hopefully, you know, we've got these big nice big fans downstairs that um, that can keep the keep you a little bit cool and your heart rate won't drift up as much. But and deafen you, and deafen yeah. you as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> crank the music up. But um, yeah, if your heart rate drifts, if you haven't got a fan, you, you'll actually see that your heart rate will drift a fair bit more. Um, than if you hadn't, and also interestingly, a paper was published just last year showing that heart rate drift is more pronounced in rowing than it is in other um, other sports like you know stationary cycling, yeah, for right. example. So why is that? Um, I'm sure off the top of my head, I think it might be due to larger muscle, more muscle mass being mm. recruited. Obviously, rowing being a whole body activity yep. and and upper body being involved um, can lead to higher heart rates and things like that. And as well. I think, so, as we've discussed, it's the efficiency of rowing compared to, say, cycling and running, it, it's a lot lower. Yeah, isn't it? exactly right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so yeah, that that would also potentially play an impact. So, yeah. I mean, that's probably the the slight caveat there that you know, if you do see it drifting, potentially you might still officially, from a metabolic point of view, be in the correct zone, but your heart rate might be a little bit high. So, I. Almost always, when I look at the heart rate files, the, the heart rate will drift into T3 by the end. But if it's a smaller percentage of time, I'm happy. If it's 50% or, you know, as we often see, it's, you know, it can be 60, yeah. <laughs> or 70%, then probably you were going too hard from, from the beginning. So, um, yeah, just got to take that into account. And the aerobic training is obviously important for rowing because of the aerobic contribution to the race, which is still, you know, three quarters of the race is thought to be predominantly aerobically yeah, driven. Probably more, yeah. Yeah, probably more. Um, so that, and, and at this time of the year, obviously, it is important, although we will talk at some stage a little bit about some alternative views on the type of training that we can do at this time of the year as well. Mm-hmm. So to recap, three by 30, um, looking at about 80% of your max heart rate or 60% of your average power for your 2K, um, an RPE saying steady or cons- consistent yeah. yeah I guess if you're on the 1 to 10 scale it might sort of start off at start off at 2 and might end up at 3 maybe 4 by the end um, yep. and then on the 6 to 20 it might be sort of starting at 11 by the, you know when you first hop on and by the end it might be at 13 yeah yeah something like that good one nice anything else have we solved all the issues of I'm sure we've caused only further controversies and discussions in that space, but um, you know, certainly happy to hear any feedback on that from anyone out there, and um, we'll continue this conversation uh, in our next podcast.